If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 65. We are in the last three, I believe. <laughs> 65 is going to be two sermons, and I believe I'll do 66 as one. We're in the last three sermons of the book of Isaiah. It's been a long time we've been in Isaiah, but we've gotten through the whole book. Um, after that, we're going to do, we'll, we'll be at the end of October. We'll have a, um, I'm going to do a sermon on church planting. It's the fifth Sunday. Every fifth Sunday, we do a, we do a focus on church planting. I'll clean my glasses. I can't see. Can't see anyways, but dirty glasses make it worse. So we are, we are going to, um, I'm going to do a sermon on church planting. We'll talk about some of the churches that were planted by the Apostle Paul and by others. And I believe at this point in time, I haven't talked to Seth about this yet, but I think we're going to take, we'll take a special offering um, for um, Three Trees, our church plant down in Hartford City. I'll give you more details on that as we get closer. And then I'm going to go into the book of Titus until we get to Christmas. So we'll be through get through the book of Titus, and then we'll be into Christmas and Thanksgiving. So hard to believe this year is far over. This year has gone by so quick. So please turn to Isaiah 65. It helps if I have my notes. You know, God is a story changer. He he. he touches our lives, he gets into our lives, he changes our stories from being victims to being victors. If you if you were listening to the words that we just sang, that's very much what those songs were saying. You know, we don't have to worry about tomorrow. We God God has us. We we in this world, this world victimizes us. It wants us to be victims because if we're victims then it makes us weak. And if we're weak, that makes it possible for it to control us. Well we 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 can't be victims. We need to be victors. We are all victims in this fallen world, and we're victims of our own sinful nature, and we're victims of the evil one himself. So what happens is God waits patiently for us. God could very easily step in, make everything perfect in our lives, but that's not what he wants to do. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to desire him, to be want to be in his presence. So he waits for us. And he waits for us to finally realize that everything in this world that seems to fulfill us, everything in this world that draws our eyes away, actually, ultimately, will be our undoing. Even good things. Ed and I were talking about this this morning. Every time there's a good thing, there's a bad thing right along with it. There's something bad. It can be used. Anything good can be used for evil. So that's the way this world is. We need God's intervention in our lives. And, and we say, well, I'm a believer already. You, I want to be honest with you. As a believer in Christ, I need God's intervention even more. Because if I'm, if I'm a believer, if I'm, I'm walking with Christ, I'm a target. You're a target. The world targets us. The world, the evil one targets us. But we struggle with that. We struggle to see that God is all that we need. And one of the things that makes it so difficult for us to realize that is the fact that God is invisible. He's spirit. We don't see him. We, we don't, well, we, we, we'll talk about this. We, sh- we should see him in, in all of nature, but we don't actually see the physical presence of God standing before us. There have been very few people in the Bible who have actually experienced being in the physical presence of God himself outside of those that experience being with Christ. 
But scripture is full of these stories of God's radiance. How God is, God is so amazing that the angels, when they, when they come into his presence, they cover their face because they cannot look upon him. That's how amazing he is and how radiant he is. God is actively ruling over every atom in our universe. We are held together because God declared, he's the only one who can declare things and have it be, by the way. God declared that our, our atoms would stay together. He's actively ruling it. He holds it all together. He's the source of all that is beautiful. And yet we cannot physically see God. You know, much of what we know about our universe, whether it is physical around here, or whether it's the universe that we see when we go out at night and the stars have been gorgeous. When it's colder, the stars are just beautiful. Most of that we know because of what we see. Our, the, 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 the wonderful thing that God gave us is the gift of sight. That's why it's, you know, it's, it's difficult when people lose their sight, but it's, it's that sight that we see. That's how we determine what we, what our universe is like. We look up at the stars, we wonder about the universe. We look at a microscope, we wonder about the, the subatomic world. My kids right now are studying physics. They don't like it. I love it. Studying about neutrons and protons and electrons. And I love that stuff because it tells me that God is, yeah, God is big and God is, is concerned about the immenseness, the huge expanse of space. And that he's also concerned about the little bitty atoms that are between my finger. He's both. Colors and light flood our minds in the spring as the flowers come up. And in the fall here with the leaves, I'm not so sure the leaves aren't turning that much right now. They're not as beautiful as they could be. But that beauty that we see in the leaves changing colors then falling to the ground. In the spring, I love it when the spring when the flowers come out. Matthew 6, 22, Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And now, obviously, Jesus is not talking just about the physical eye. He's talking about our spiritual eyes. We see things with our heart. We see things with our spirit. If that's healthy, then we're going to be full of light. But as believers, we long to see God. I, I long to be in God's presence. I long to, I want, I'm, I'm looking forward to the time when I'm standing face to face with Christ. And I know all of us say, I'm going to, oh, I got questions to ask. I think when we first see him, we're not going to be asking any questions. I think we're going to be down on our knees. It's going to be so awesome to be in his presence. But see, right now we can't see him because he's in the unseen realm. He's, it's all around us. Last week we talked about God rending the heavens, tearing the heavens apart and coming down, entering into our dimension, into our world. Because rendering, rending means tearing, to, to tear up, to rip. So God is asking, uh, Isaiah is asking God to, to tear open the veil between our realm and the unseen realm, and the, which is the spirit realm. We cannot, at least not yet, cross that veil to the place where God resides. We will one day, if Christ doesn't come back before then, we will all face that day when we will cross the veil. Some have had the privilege of doing so and not dying, but only a few, only two that we know of. 
That's Enoch. Isaiah, so, I mean, Isaiah, Elijah. And what we know about the spirit realm, we only know about what God has chosen to reveal to us. And revealing himself to us is the very purpose for his word. That's why we have the Bible. It's so that we will know God better. To pull back that veil just a little bit. It's kind of like a little boy peeking in, the, peeking in the curtain as his parents are, you know, in the room and watching, watching them. The Bible opens up the veil just a little bit for us to see, get glimpses of the majesty and the awesomeness of God so that we can begin to understand that God is holy, holy, holy. And as we do that, God invites us to seek him. Look what it says in Isaiah 65, verse 1. And, and I want you to, as I read this, I want you to, to listen to, at least I get the feeling of, of an emotion here that, at least if I was saying these things, it's almost like a sadness that God is experiencing. He says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. He's ready. He's ready for us to come and to seek him. But we don't ask for him. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I just get this, like I say, I get this sense of sorrow, this sense of, of sadness that, you know, even the nation that was called by his name, which is Israel, didn't seek him. And then the rest of the nations who were also to seek him, that was the whole purpose of Israel was to show the world what it was like to be God's children and to bring them closer to God. But God is persistently and patiently presenting himself to the world and the world refuses to seek him. It's almost like he humiliates himself. You know, here I am. You know, here I am. See me. I'm here. And we just walk right by. The world just walks right by God and ignores him intentionally. And humiliate, he does. God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come down to take the form of a servant and to be humiliated on the cross. Here I am. Lift it up. Here I am. Look on me. Come to me. Philippians 2, Paul tells the church, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus humbled himself. He was in heaven. He was with his father. We read stories in scripture. We read in Revelation how amazing God, oh, heaven is. We see those glimpses where people have gotten a glimpse of what heaven is like. And, and why would you ever leave that? He humbled himself to do that, to come, to die on the cross. See, God does, does not wait for us to show an interest in him. 
Okay, he doesn't sit back and say, "Okay, I'm just going to sit here and wait till those people finally realize that they need me." No, he acted first because we don't even seek him, even though he's waiting for us. He made the first move. He sent his son to die for us. We don't have to get our ducks in a row before we seek his face. He just says, "Here I am. Here I am. Come to me. Seek me. All are welcome." See, because the gospel tells us, Scripture tells us that when the gospel is preached, the voice of Christ comes through. Paul told the church in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God is not waiting for us to to clean ourselves up and to want to come and actually say, Hey, he says, I'm going to send you the gospel. I'm going to give you the gospel. And then the gospel changes people's lives. But it's not about being religious. It's not about it's not about calling yourself a Baptist, a, a Lutheran, a missionary, whatever. It's not about that. It's about finding God and seeking His face. We talked about that last night, week when we talked about revival. We must seek His face, and God comes down. In fact, religion can many times be a problem. Religion can cause us to reject God. Verse 2 of Isaiah 65, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. The Israelites were religious people. The Pharisees were religious people. There are many people who are, quote, religious. There are very few who are followers of Christ. And I can say that because I know Scripture says, Wide is the way that leads to destruction, and narrow is the way that leads to God. God is amazingly patient with us. And yet, just like the Israelites, we seek our own selfish desires. This world, that's what it does. God is amazingly patient, far more than I would be. In the first century, Paul was pretty much bothered by the fact that that so few Jews were coming to faith in Jesus. He, He was upset because there were so few, and they should have known. But there were many Gentiles just coming to Christ in droves. They were coming and they were believing. The Jews had a rich background. They had the Torah. They had the Talmud, which was the writings of the of the of the rabbis explaining the Torah, which was the first five books of the Bible. They had the prophets. They knew. They were in the perfect position to know the Messiah was here. They were in the perfect position to trust God, and they didn't. They had the history. They had been trained in the Old Testament from an early age. They should have seen that Jesus was the promised Messiah, and yet they had a problem that we see in verse 2 of Isaiah 65. They walk in a way that's not good, following their own devices. See, it's not its not a, the fact that people don't have enough information or they haven't been prepared enough. That's not what keeps people from trusting in Christ. In fact, it's the very fact that they are rebellious. That's why they don't trust in Christ. That's why we, even as believers many times, don't put our full faith and trust in Christ. What do we do? We try to fix it on our own. We worry. We fret. We struggle. And what we need to do, we need to be on our knees, surrendering it to Christ. Let him take care of it. 
So what does it mean to be rebellious? Now, obviously, anybody who has children realizes what it means to be rebellious. Except for my kids. My kids never rebel. That's a lie. <laughs> we all know what rebellion is. It means to be rigid. The word actually rebellious, when you define it, means to be rigid, never content, stubborn. Oh, now that I think about it, sometimes I'm rebellious. Even today. Not right now, but even in my day today. See, being rebellious is the opposite of being lowly in spirit and contrite. Isaiah sees God explaining himself, opening up his arms, being reasonable, pleading to those he loves to come to him. But it's, wait a minute, Pastor says that they didn't they didn't weren't called by his name. No, God loves everyone. He created everyone. Just because someone's not a believer in Christ does not mean he didn't weave them together in their mother's womb. He still loves them. And his desire is that all would come to faith, but not all will. But he explains himself, pleading, come. If for them it's not enough. God reaches out to us through the prophets, through his word, through nature itself. And he ultimately reached out to us through his son, Jesus Christ. But we still remain stubborn, stiff-necked, rebellious, hard-headed. My dad always used that term. You're just being hard-headed. I used that term on him one time. I probably should never have done that. Don't ever turn <laughs> things your parents say back on them because they don't like it. I think we were both being hard-headed. So I get it. I got it honestly. So that's good. Or you can use whatever term you want to use for what we do. It seems that those that have the most exposure and the best opportunity to turn to God are usually the ones who reject Jesus Christ. Uh, nowadays, you, you hear a lot in, uh, in Christian circles about people who are, are, are deconstructing their faith. And a lot of these are pastors. A lot of these are people are pastors' families, the ones who should know the truth and should know what's right, and yet they're deconstruct, they're tearing their faith down. And there are those who have rebuilt their faith and they rebuilt it upon the scriptures, rebuilt it upon God's word. There's others that have rebuilt it another way. They follow their own desires. And what it seemed for, especially in the time of Paul, all those who were outside of Israel, who, who had the most disadvantaged possibilities to why they would come to faith, were the ones who were coming and turning to Christ. Because we have to understand that our faith, our walk with Christ is not genetic. I always tell people with their kids, I'm like, okay, you have a faith. Your children must find their own faith. You cannot survive on your parents' faith. You have to realize for yourself who Christ is. You have to realize for yourself who you are and that you need him. Your parents doing it doesn't solve it. You must have your own faith. Our children need to be more than just exposed to the gospel. They need the Holy Spirit-given ability to respond to God. That's given by God. We, 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 we can't respond unless he gives us that ability to respond. 
the very thing that we are naturally disinclined to do. So despite God's constant presence, his outreach, these, the Israelites turned to idols. They indulged in things of sin, in sinful practices. They indulged in things of the flesh. And this is what he says, Isaiah says in verse 3, he says, a people who provoke me to my face continually. It's not just that they're doing it in secret. They're doing it in the open. They are doing it in front. They know you. God sees everything. I tell my kids this. God sees everything. God hears your voice, your thoughts. So if you think something, he hears it. If you're going off to a dark place to do something you're not supposed to do, he sees it. They provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh, and the broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. Ooh, you can hear the, the pride in that. Well, I'm, I'm an Israelite. They are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. What they are doing is not worshiping God. This is not how we find God. And while we may not do the exact things that the Israelites do, we too have wanderings and false practices. Because the human mind is deeply pagan. It's a selfish thing. It's not natural for us to submit to God or submit to anybody. But instead, we, we seek ways to manipulate God's power for our own desires and our own ends. Oh, foolish man, to think that we can manipulate so mighty of a God as Yahweh. And our man-made religion, be it pagan or even puritanical, Meaning, you know, the Puritans, everything has got to be, these are all the rules you got to follow, and you better follow them to the T, and you got to be perfect. Even that is a man made religion, will only end up dishonoring God, and it'll actually end up mistreating people. Human religion is a means for self-righteousness. When we, when we use our human thoughts in human religion, it, it, it's a self-righteous exclusion and a sanctimonious comparing of our elitism, its self-exaltation. It feels holy. Oh, look, look how perfect I am, right? It feels pious. But the reality is it provokes God continually. One of the most important discoveries in our walk with Christ is to understand the difference between true holiness and false holiness. The writer of Proverbs told us in, tells us in 14.12, he says, There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. We think we're doing the right thing. We think we're going in the right direction. It looks like we're a success, especially if you look at it from the world's perspective. The reality is it's leading to death. Our rejection of true holiness and in the end of God himself will lead to consequences that we could never imagine. Because God's not going to wait forever. Right now he's saying, here I am, here I am. One day he's going to say, I'm no longer here for you. I'm not waiting for you anymore. One day on the day of judgment, God will no longer hold back his wrath. Luckily, we live in the day of grace right now. Because God has promised to restore us. Look at verse 6. He says, behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. 
I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities. Together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. God is a good record keeper. It says that, it's believed that angels record everything that happens on earth. There are books. It's not computerized as far as we know, but there are books where they, you know, we hear about them opening the book of life, where everybody's name, the book of the Lamb, where everybody's name is written in who believes in Christ, who trusts in him. He keeps records. And many of us don't realize that sometimes day by day we're storing up wrath in a log of what we've done against God. He's remained silent. But his silence is not to be misconstrued to think that he doesn't care. They may say there's no God. He's, he's not holy. Or they may make the assumption that he forgives everyone. But God is not to be mocked. While the wicked may seem to get away with murder in this world, they will ultimately reap what they sow. We'll go to the book of Revelation verse chapter 2 says, And I will strike their children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. See, our only hope is Christ. He bore the wrath that we deserve, that we should have been the one on the cross. So that we must so we so we must flee to Christ instead of running from him. I always tell people when they're struggling in their finances and they say, oh, I got all these creditors calling me. I said, call them back. What do you mean call them back? That means I got to, yeah, call them back. Don't run from them, run to them. Because everybody runs from their creditors and you're running to them and they're going to probably work with you. We, we shouldn't be running from Christ. When we are struggling, when we're in trouble, we need to run to him, not away from him. And we must do that while there's still time, because without Christ, the world is under the wrath of God. All over the world, and even our own community, people are involved in wicked and idolatrous worship. There's this growing paganism in our communities. I've been doing some research on this. I was just talking to you, some of you who were here when I was gone. You met Jimmy. Jimmy is a good friend of mine, old friend of mine. from He's a pastor in Huntington, and he and I talk about some of the stuff that's going on. The occult is huge in this area. We don't realize it. But there are covens, there are witches' covens in this in these communities, in Wells and Huntington County. We don't see it, but it's there. He knows people who have been involved in them. And he sees it, and he does his, has done his research on it. We were just talking about it this last week. It's it's out there. We become our society has become more and more pagan. The occult is alive and well, and only Christ can rescue those in paganism, and he is the only answer for those who are indifferent to the gospel. And this is what God says in Isaiah 65, verse 8. He says, Thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servants' sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. We, we see God's using this grape metaphor. I have, I have grapevine. 
and about a month ago, I went out and started picking them. And what he says, you see this, this bunch of grapes, and there are grapes on there that look bad. But you don't cut the whole grape, the grape clump off and throw the whole thing away. What do you do? You pick off the bad ones, you throw them away, and you keep the good ones. What God does is he separates the good from the bad. And this is what God does among those who of us who claim to be his people. He is going to separate us finally. Right now, we live amongst the clump of grapes that's bad and good. In fact, we are to be lights shining into their lives. Because God's a God of restoration. He can restore those bad grapes. But they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear that Jesus loves them and what he did for them. He examines us carefully. He sees past our our outward veneer of holiness, that self-righteousness that we put in front of us way too easily sometimes. And he decides whether to gather or to throw away. And he determines this by our position with Christ. See, you and I can't look at someone and say, well, that person's a throwaway person. God's just going to throw them away. Because we don't know where their position is in Christ. So we have to be humble. And we have to help them and get to know them and to love them as Christ does. Because he looks past this. He looks past our outward appearance and he sees the deepness. He sees who we are, who he created us to be. The book of Ephesians, Paul is a great book and I've I've preached on it before so I won't do it again. But I continually keep going back to it to pull verses that are so pertinent and so important. Ephesians 2, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan himself, by the way. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were just like them. But God, being, I love it, but God, that's all it takes, but God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive in Christ together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raises us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, that's what's coming up, we're in an age after Paul's age and now going into the next age constantly. So in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, for those who trust in Christ, there's this rich blessing. The righteous in Christ are going to inherit the earth. Strong, along with the faithful, strong and the faithful descendants of Abraham. Those Israelites who are still faithful to Abraham, through Abraham. And faithful to God. And we will enjoy prosperity, we'll enjoy security, we'll enjoy being in the presence of God. The fulfillment of all of God's promises. We're going to get to experience that. First comes judgment. First comes wrath. And the bad grapes need to be taken out of the bunch. So there's this contrast here that Isaiah has. In Isaiah, in verse 11, it says, But you who forsake the Lord. He's been talking about the good grapes. He's now, You who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When he says, here I am, here I am, they didn't answer. I spoke, you didn't listen. 
But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. So those who turn their backs on God and his blessings, they're not doing it by accident. It's intentional. You don't fall into sin. You intentionally sin. We know it's wrong. We do it anyways. There's this stark contrast being drawn between those who forsake God and those who remain faithful. Those who abandon God will face adversity and the faithful will partake in God's abundance. There's this reversal of suffering because they're suffering right now. They're in captivity. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, this is verse 13, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty, saying, you that don't that don't trust me, those, those that turned away from me, you are going to be hungry. But my servants will not. They will be able to eat. They will be able to drink. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. All these pictures of what the, is going to happen to those who are not believers in Christ, who don't come to him, who don't turn to him. They're going to, that's that's the perfect description of what hell is. At the great after the great white throne judgment, they will be cast into hell, and this is what they will experience. You shall leave your name to my to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants, he will call by another name. In fact, Revelation says that we'll have a new name, so that he may he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. So we're standing at this fork in the road. We have two possibilities. We either Go to heaven, we go to hell. Not a popular thing to say today. In fact, there's a lot of churches that are trying to, they'll say there is no hell. That's a big thing that's going on right now. There is no hell. I was I was talking to Jimmy about everything going on. I said, you know, one of the one of the biggest, uh, the, the most effective thing that Satan ever did is to convince people he doesn't exist. If he doesn't exist, he can do whatever he wants. But whatever God allows him to do, people won't won't realize it's him because they don't think he exists. We've got a choice to make. Not many people, they don't like the, they don't like the idea of hell. They fool themselves in believing it doesn't exist, but Scripture says otherwise. And those people who, who object to it don't understand the gospel at all. They want to think that God would never send good people to hell. People always tell me, well, so-and-so is a good person. I'm like, there's nobody who's good. Well, they deserve, no, they don't deserve anything. They deserve wrath. They deserve death. We deserve nothing. Everything we have is a blessing from God. Everything else is just a blessing. We deserve death. So count your blessings. Name them one by one. <laughs> count your blessings. See what God has done. The gospel says that God saves bad people, not nice people, not sincere people. He saves bad people. To claim that God accepts anyone who's nice and kind and tolerant is to claim that we who are saved by our, we need to be saved by our moral actions. Our moral actions don't save us. It sounds sweet. Where does that leave those who aren't nice, who aren't tolerant, who aren't kind? The gospel says that bad people can be saved because Jesus Christ 
obeyed God for bad people. He came to die for sinners. Jesus, when he's sitting there, he's sitting there with the with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the and the and, and the Pharisees saying, "What are you doing eating with these people?" And Jesus says, "It's the sick that need the doctor, not the well." He's saying, "You guys, you guys should know this better. You have all the privileges. You should be good. You should be well, but you're not. And you don't want to be. These people, they're really sick and they need me. They're bad." They need me. So the popular idea today that we can be saved by our own actions is actually cruel, exclusionary, and snobbish. And those are the very people who the gospel says belong in hell. In Christ, we experience this love of God. Where, we, where he decided not to punish us for the guilt of our sins, but instead he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, as our substitute in his passion, in his death. So don't be offended by the doctrine of hell. It's, it's, it is only by the gospel of Christ that bad people are offered hope and we can see the costly love of God. If we come to God as the God of truth, not the God of nice people, but the God of truth, then God wants to encourage you. He's preparing a place for you. So we need to embrace restoration we need to embrace god working in our lives so when we when we struggle when we're when we're we find our places ourselves in places where where we feel that we can't make it anymore we need to look, say okay god what are you doing what do you want me to learn what do you want me to be where do you want me to go and maybe he'll tell you right away and maybe he needs to take you further into the muck and the mire until we finally realize what we really need but we need to turn to christ we need to trust him we need to seek his face he says, here I am, here I am. We're crawling through the mud. He says, here, take my hand. And we're like, no, no, that's okay, I got it. We need to embrace restoration. We need to recognize that God's unwavering invitation to seek him. He's saying, come to me. Come to me, all those who are sick and weary laden and heavy laden. Sick, weary, and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is light. What he's saying is that if, if, I'm, if I'm struggling with something, if, and, and there's been some things happening recently in my, in my life and in my family, that I'm like, wow, God, I, can, I don't know if I can do this. He says, take my yoke. It's light. I'll get you through this. He is the strong man. He's, there's nothing is more powerful than God. Nothing more powerful than Christ. There's nothing he can't do. There's nothing we can't do when we are in him and we are trusting him. And when we're doing his will. He tells us, take my hand. He invites us to seek him, even when we have strayed. We need to repent of our rebellious ways. And we need to return to God's open arms. You know the story of the the prodigal son, which is actually the story of the prodigal daughter. You, I brought daughter, the prodigal father. I'm not rewriting scripture. Prodigal father. Father has two sons, older son and the younger son. The younger son decides that I want my I want my inheritance now, which was 
was not an uncommon practice at the time. You come to the father, they, the father determined what his portion would be, and he gives it to you. The son goes off. He squanders everything. He ends up, he's Jewish. Think about this. God, Jesus is telling this to Jews. He's a Jewish man, and he ends up in a pigsty, slopping hogs. But he can't eat any of it. He's not allowed to. And he thinks, well, my, you know, my father has servants, and they, they, they do much better than I do. I'm going to go back. I'm going to tell my father that I'm going to be his servant, that I'm no longer a son. I'm going to be his servant. And that whole time, the father is standing there waiting, saying, here I am. Here I am. The son comes back, and the father sees him coming off. And what does the father do? The father runs to him. Jesus came to us. He didn't, he didn't open the clouds and say, okay, all you people, here I am. Believe in me. No, he came down. He became a man. He suffered and died, rose again for us. The son comes back. The father hugs him, is weeping. He says, I want to. Son says, I, want, I just want to be your servant, Dad. I just, I just, I can't do this anymore. And he says, bring a robe, bring a ring, bring a fatted calf. My son has come home. We need to repent of our rebellious ways and return to God's open arms. And then we need to trust God's promise of restoration. Believe me, restoration is not easy. You have anybody who's restored a cabinet. Anything with wood. What do you have to do when you have an old piece of furniture? What's the first thing you've got to do? You've got to sand it. <laughs> I hate sanding. It's hard work. But you and believe me, the really good restoration people do it by hand. They don't get a hand sander, you know, electric one. They do it by hand. It's hard work. But you have to sand off the rough edges. That's what God does to us. He sands off our rough edges. He restores us to some a beautiful piece of furniture to us. I mean, he's, that's what we are. He, he restores us by sanding off some of those rough edges. But we have to trust in his promise of restoration, knowing that he can reverse the suffering that we're experiencing. And he can bring about abundant blessings. But we have to trust him. We have to recognize his unwavering invitation to seek him. We have to repent of our rebellious ways and return to his open arms and trust him to restore us. Let's pray.